afternoon. It's Rob Port, 970 WDAY AM 93.1 FM. With me as always is, well, not always. Sometimes one of the other of us is sick. Most of the time. Most of the time. Most of the time. With me most of the time. Nitiel, how you doing? (laughs) Doing pretty good today. Happy to be with you as well. Uh, All right, so we have... uh, Congressman Kevin Kramer is on, as he is always on uh, Wednesdays. You can call in, ask him whatever you want. It's it's really not about me interviewing him. It's it's your opportunity. He's making himself available. Your emails, your phone calls will defer to you. We can always try to get all of them in, and we usually succeed. Uh, he's on at 130-701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Uh, we'll do the rundown at 1 o'clock. Uh, we got a lot of stuff to uh, to talk about today. Um, yesterday was uh, Governor Doug Burgum's State of the State Address. Uh, he concluded actually just before our show yesterday. We talked about it somewhat, what he had to say. Um, the Democrats had a had a response, uh, which is not unusual, Natil. I, I think even at the national level, when the president delivers his State of the State, um, the opposing party, be it the Republicans or the Democrats at the time, um, deliver a, a rebuttal, and and they do the same thing here in North Dakota. When when the governor gives the state of the state, the Democrats give give a rebuttal. Um, yesterday, the rebuttal was given by State Representative Ron Gugasberg. Uh, governor Burgum's state of the state was was ninety minutes long. Which by the way, let's let's go down that rabbit hole for a minute. I've been getting some I've been getting some people people who said that his um, that Governor Burgum's state of the state address was too long. It was 90 minutes, and uh, I, I have heard people say that it was self-indulgent. It was too long. Um, I, I don't know how to quantify that. I mean, Burgum, Burgum likes his slideshows. I mean, he kind of when he delivers a speech, it's not like a, a usual politician. He kind of does it like the he does like the Steve Jobs thing, right? Where he's got the microphone. It's kind of like TED Talk type thing. That's that's how Burgum does it. That's his style. It was a long speech. I mean, Burgum does like to hear himself talk. I don't I don't think there's any question about that. Um, I, I guess I didn't, I listened to a lot of political speeches, so I guess I didn't think this one was particularly egregious, uh, but I went and looked it up. Uh, I, I went and actually looked up, but we don't have, we don't have statistics on, we don't have statistics on, on how length of speeches for North Dakota governors, uh, but would it surprise you that that's a metric that we track for presidents to deal? Oh, not at all. I'm, I'm sure that we track pretty much everything that is possibly trackable for presidents. It wouldn't surprise me if somewhere you could dig up a list of number of cheeseburgers consumed by presidents since 1980. Yeah, well, I don't know that I don't know that it's that far. But the University of California Santa Barbara uh, tracks presidential state of the state addresses. And so I thought just for for a point of comparison, Burgum's was about 90 minutes long. And by the way, Jay Thomas is weighing in here on Facebook. He's telling me 90 minutes is long. And how many damn times did he cry? Uh, yeah, he did. He did get choked up a few times, you know, and people, again, people make fun of him for that. I think as, as critical of I, as I have been of Burgum in the past, and I've been pretty critical at times. And even as critical as I was of this state of the state, I didn't like the fact that they had it privately sponsored. I didn't like that at all. Um, I think, I think the guy genuinely loves North Dakota. I think he genuinely is passionate and cares about the issues he talks about. I, I don't think he's doing that for effect where he gets choked up, starts crying. I, I don't think that's. I don't think that's for effect. I, I think he's just generally a passionate guy. I really do. Um, 
So I don't know. I mean, maybe he said maybe he should control his passion a little bit more. I don't know. It doesn't bother me. Anyway, so I'm looking at this list. Uh, let's see where this goes back to. This goes back to Lyndon Johnson. All the way back to Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and it has the average length. And I'm looking here. The longest average state of the state addresses is, guess which president, Natil? Since uh, since LBJ. Since LBJ. Mm, I'm, I think I might actually go with Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy was before oh, LBJ. Oh, duh. Yeah. Let's LBJ go. took over when Kennedy was assassinated. Let's go. Well, well that. Let's go with uh, Bush Sr. Bush Sr. averaged 45 minutes. Uh, he was actually one of the quicker ones. Huh? Longest, William Jefferson Clinton clacking in at an average one hour and 14 minutes. His longest total, one hour and 28 minutes. So, so Wow, that's almost twice Bush Sr. Yeah, so Clinton's longest state of the state address came in at about two minutes under what Burgum did yesterday. Uh, let's see, LBJ averaged 53 minutes. Richard Nixon averaged 35 minutes. Uh, Gerald Ford, 45 minutes. Jimmy Carter, 36 minutes. Uh, Ronald Reagan, 40 minutes. George Bush Sr., uh, 45 minutes. Uh, Bill Clinton, one hour and 14 minutes. So Clinton Clinton was a big offender. George W. Bush, 52 minutes. He was pretty long, uh, although about on par with LBJ. Barack Obama, about an hour and two minutes he averaged. Uh, and Donald Trump's first, he's only given one so far, his first State of the, State of the Union address came in in a Almost exactly an hour. One hour, ten seconds. So it seems like about an hour has been the norm in recent history, about, like in modern ra- ra- history. Ranging from, I think the average probably about 45 minutes to an hour for presidents. And so Bergen coming in at 90 minutes, pretty long. And so I, yes. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, does that mean he was self-indulgent? Does that mean he spoke too long? I don't know. 90 minutes is a long time. Um, and I guess, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm so inert at this point to, to, to politicians yammering. That I I don't notice I don't notice it anymore. It's my job, so uh, I don't know. I, I mean, it didn't feel that long to me, but I guess yeah, it's a long time. Pretty indulgent. Um, the other thing, though, is that the Democratic response was ten minutes, and maybe people think that's good. You know, ten minutes rebuttal. But this caught my eye, and it makes me wonder if North Dakota Democrats are even trying anymore. Um, Representative Ron Gugesberg, he was selected. He gave he delivered the response to Burgum. Burgum delivered his address from Minot State University. Gugesberg delivered his address uh, from the Capitol in Bismarck. Um, and this is this this report from the Bismarck Tribune. Gugesberg, who said he wasn't able to listen to Burgum's speech, blamed Republicans in the majority for mishandling the state's budget and warned that North Dakotans will see property tax increases. Um, wasn't able to listen to Burgum's speech. I, I mean, at this point, I mean, so you didn't listen to the speech? Like you, your job is to deliver the rebuttal. Your job is 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 to is to deliver the response to the state of the state address. But you didn't listen to it. You just went up there, I guess, and regurgitated some talking points. And I just, I I don't know. It stuck out to me, and it almost seems like a microcosm for why North Dakota Democrats can't win elections in North Dakota. I don't think they're really trying. I, I, th- I think the De- North Dakota Democratic Party is a joke, a poorly organized joke. And, and honestly, if you talk to a lot of left-leaning people in the state, they'll admit to it. They'll confess to it. I mean, not. I mean, ideology and everything else aside, 
just in terms of, of effectiveness, just in terms of competence, they're a joke. And, and I'm drawing a distinction here between the campaign of Senator Heidi Heitkamp, right? Her campaign apparatus is actually pretty good. I think she's probably one of the best political campaigners the state's ever seen. Her campaign is very good. But you got to draw a distinction between that and the party itself, which is a miserable failure, which is why they can't win elections. You know, I mean, I mean maybe they're just not even expecting anybody to, to pay attention to the rebuttal. I mean, they put it on Facebook. I, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna say that we're 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 delivering the rebuttal to the state of the state in a teal, it seems to me like you maybe should have listened to the state of the state address. Well, absolutely, you can't rebut something you don't listen to. That's kind of the definition of a rebuttal. Yeah. How do you how do you how do you provide a rebuttal if you weren't listening, if you weren't paying attention? I mean, no wonder these people can't win elections. I just. And, and you know, I, I say that obviously. I'm a conservative. I'm not. I'm not out there voting for a lot of Democrats. Although I have voted for Democrats in the past. You know who the first person I voted for president was, Nathiel? This is going to shock you. Hold on to your seat. Oh, was it Bill Clinton? <laughs> it was actually actually the first time I was a, I was old enough to vote for president uh, was the 2000 election. I voted for Al Gore. Can you believe that? No, I actually can't. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I voted for Al Gore. I was 20 years old. I thought I thought Republicans were a bunch of stodgy old weenies, and uh, and Republican and Democrats were the cool guys. Uh, and then I actually started paying attention, and I earned some money, and I paid some taxes, and I figured out I was a Republican. So <clears throat> that's how that went for me. But that being said, I believe in competitive politics. I th- I think we're best served by a vigorous debate, a vigorous competition between competing ideas. I don't think North Dakota's getting that right now. Now, I I do think the Republican majority is doing a pretty good job overall. I think they could be doing a better job if they were maybe a little bit worried about a competent Democratic Party on their left flank. Unfortunately, North Dakota hasn't had a competent Democratic Party in a long, long time. And I think their limp noodle response to Burgum's state of the state address, and believe me, there is plenty to respond to in that address. Their limp noodle response is an example of it. They're mailing it in. So should it surprise us they don't win elections, or at least they don't win that many of them? Call in 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rockport 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. You know, we've been talking about state of the state addresses in the first part of the show. I got a little bit of breaking news uh, relevant to North Dakota for the uh, for, for President Trump's state of the state address. Uh, that is, what is it happening? Oh, it's on. It's uh, Tuesday next week, January 30th. His state of the state address. Uh, do you remember Tommy Fisher, Natil? We had him on the show not that long ago from Fisher Sand and Gravel. They're uh, they're one of the finalists to build Trump's border wall. No, was I sick that day? I was sick out. that day. Eric just anyway, we had we've had we've had Tommy Fisher on the program. Uh, he's going to the state of the state address. 
State of the uh, Union, you mean? Going, or, excuse me, State of the Union address. Uh, he's actually going to be the guest of Congressman Kevin Kramer. Um, and that might be interesting. I mean, that might make for some national news. Obviously, he's, again, one of the finalists to build the border wall. Um, I have a feeling that might be a topic Trump might uh, might mention during his address. Maybe he'll get a shout-out or something. That's interesting. I, uh, I sent in a, a request. Uh, to uh, Fisher Stand and Gravel's PR, and we'll see if we can't get Tommy on. Maybe, uh, maybe before the State of the State of the Union or, or after the State of the Union. I don't know yet. We'll work on that. Uh, we'll get him on the program. Uh, other big news: uh, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, uh, her approval numbers. Now, now one of the things, obviously, Congressman Kevin Kramer opted not to run, and a lot of people have been touting her high approval numbers, um, specifically in the morning consult poll. North Dakota doesn't see a lot of uh, public polling in general on these races but morning consults been pretty consistently uh, pulling our approval ratings uh, for senator heitkamp for the last well, a couple years um over the last year her trend in that poll is not good uh in this most recent poll she saw an 11 point drop in her net approval rating now i say net approval that would be her approval minus her disapproval numbers uh she's still plus 17 uh, but that's down 11 points from the end of the last quarter. Now, why is she down that much? This this, this polling, it's it's not. I, I think I think maybe a lot of people say, well, she voted against tax reform, and that's why. Uh, that's probably not it, and I'm not sure that that's good news for Senator Heitkamp. The timing for this polling was the last quarter, the fourth quarter of 2017. So we're talking about October through December 2017. The tax reform vote. Uh, was just last month in December. So at best, that vote happened at the tail end of this polling period, which means it probably didn't have a lot of impact on the polling. But the reason why that's probably not good for Senator Heitkamp is, well, we've had a lot of good news about that tax reform bill. She voted against it. Uh, she's still out making some claims about how it's not going to help the middle class, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, I mean, ju- just immediately we've had a lot of good news with these companies saying that, you know, they're doing bonuses, they're bringing uh, operations back to the United States, they're repatriating some of their profits, some of their revenues, bringing that back into the United States. Already in the short term, I think we've seen some very strong responses to the tax reform bill. Um, beyond that, and, and probably starting next month, North Dakotans and, and Americans across the nation are probably going to see some changes in their paychecks resulting from the lower rates that people are paying. People's paychecks are going to get a little bit bigger. Not hugely bigger, but large enough. I mean, we're talking maybe 30, 40, depending on on your tax situation. Results may vary, of course, but depending on your specific tax situation, I mean, 40, 50, 60 bucks a month uh, or a paycheck, that's, that's not bad. So... We've got that going on. I, I I think it's only going to get worse for High Camp. Now she is currently at fifty percent approval. She's at fifty percent approval. Uh, Senator Hoven for what it's worth is at fifty four percent approval. Uh, she's at fifty percent approval, thirty three percent disapproval. Uh, that's a seventeen. She, she's plus seventeen, but across the the across the board, vulnerable senators, mostly Democrats, one Republican, Dean Heller, Nevada. Uh, across the board, mostly Democratic senators, losing ground. So it's going to be interesting. I, I, I think there are a lot of Democrats who are sort of jubilant when Congressman Kevin Kramer decided that he wasn't going to run in uh, in, in, in 20, uh, 2018, that, or excuse me, that he wasn't going to run for the Senate. He is, of course, running for re-election to the United States House. 
Um, I, I think a lot of people are saying, well, it, it's a lost clause now for Republicans. I'm not so sure. Um, Tom Campbell's still in that race. Gary Emineth is in that race. So I texted Gary over the weekend. Gary told me, and we, we had him on this program. We broke, I broke the news that uh, Emineth was considering a U.S. Senate race. When I texted him over the weekend, he was saying he still hadn't made a decision. He was off in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's securing, um, you know, trying to recruit people for his campaign uh, and, and secure some commitments. But when he was on this program, Natil, he sounded pretty certain that he was in. Um, so I, I, I think I think we're probably going to see Eminent in. And I think if Heitkamp continues to look vulnerable like this, and these numbers are not good. I mean, being at 50% approval as an incumbent, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't want those polling numbers if I was Senator Heitkamp. Now, I, I don't, I don't want to make too big of a deal of it. I don't want I don't want Republicans to overestimate it. No matter where her polling is, she's going to be a tough nut to crack um, because she has a lot of allies in the media. She has her own propaganda station managed by her brother in Fargo. She's got a lot of that stuff going on. Uh, she's going to be a tough nut to crack no matter what. But she's vulnerable. Now, of course, Republicans have to nominate a good candidate, and that candidate has to run a good campaign to beat her. But she's beatable. You know, I, I think Democrats are sort of counting on, especially now that Kramer's out of the race, and they invested a lot in beating the snot out of Kevin Kramer to keep him out of that Senate race. And I, I think when Kramer decided not to run for the Senate, Democrats are thinking they've got that Senate race locked up. I don't think they do. I don't think they do. I think Senator Heitkamp's in a lot of trouble. And I think Democrats need to be wary of that. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Report, 970 WDMI AM 93.1 FM. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDMI.com. Talking about this new polling out, Senator Heidi Heitkamp. Her net approval rating falling 11%. She's at 50% now. Maybe not a good place to be for... And by the way, that polling was from October through December. It was national polling. I think they polled like hundreds of thousands of people nationally. In North Dakota her approval rating among the, the voters that they uh, that they sampled, uh, 50%, I mean, down. I mean, she, her, her approval rating is down. And by the way, it's been trending down all year. Uh, if we go back to the uh, – let me make sure I got these dates right. I'm pretty sure, though, if we go back to January of last year, uh, January, let's see, Okay, yeah, we go back to, or excuse me, we go back to the midpoint. Uh, so we'll go back about six months. Go back to July of 2017 through January of 2016. Uh, her approval rating has fallen from 60% to 50%. Uh, her disapproval rating uh, has risen from about 27% to 33%. Uh, by the way, her disapproval rating among independents has fallen, or excuse me, her approval rating among independents has fallen by 7%. Her approval rating among Republicans has fallen by 14%. Not good numbers, in a state that's dominated by Republican and independent voters. 
Heikamp needs crossover Republican voters to win election in North Dakota. So I think she's in trouble. Got some reactions from Twitter. And by the way, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can, at Rob Port. Happy to read your tweets. You can interact with me anytime you want. Uh, let's see. Luke tweets me, uh, given her voting record, it will take a very weak Republican candidate to lose for her to her in 2018. I, I think that's wrong. I, I think Luke's making a mistake a lot of Republicans are making, which is that Heitkamp is, to, to say that she, you can beat her, that they will beat her. I, I don't think that's the case. This isn't the Republican race to lose. This is Heitkamp's race to lose. Uh, and she could lose it. But Republicans got to run a strong candidate. Uh, let's see. Another response is Heitkamp is clearly vulnerable. The bigger and more important question is who the Republicans put up against her. Who the Republicans run will determine the outcome of this election. Uh, another Twitter. I, I think that's spot on. Another uh, Twitter uh, listener says vulnerable. Yes. Beatable. Depends. Um, let's see. Another uh, response. Uh, they'll need a stronger candidate than Rick Berg. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, another response. I don't think Campbell will beat her either. The Republicans need to find a solid candidate and time is running out. Um, another response. I'm not sure that Campbell has the chops to beat her. And if her out of state funded Oppo research team finds anything on him, you know, they'll use it to the full extent. Uh, and then some, um, yeah. Okay. So those are all the responses. Another one, another one that thinks that Kevin Kramer is still going to run for the Senate. Kramer has announced, obviously he is not running for the United States Senate. So I, I don't know. I, I think, I think a lot, most of the Twitter users, there making a good point. I, I think at this point, the ball's really in, in the Republicans' court. they got to put a strong candidate up against her. Is that Tom Campbell? Is it somebody else? Heitkamp can be beat, but Republicans got to put up a strong candidate to beat her. Would you agree with that, Natil? Absolutely. I, I mean, it doesn't – even with falling polling numbers, Heitkamp is still a strong contender. She's been in her position for a long time. A lot of North Dakotans still like her and trust her, and she's a fabulous campaigner. So if the Republicans yeah. want that seat, they're going to have to work harder than maybe yeah. harder than they think they're going to have to. They can't count on Heitkamp losing that seat because she's not just going to lose it. She's she's not just going to shoot herself in the foot and then just lose. That that's just not, you know, she's she's better at it than that. So that's just not something that she's going to do. Um, so yeah, I, I think it really comes down. They've got to run a strong. They've got to run a strong. Uh, candidate against her. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. 701-293-9000, All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, Natil, you know, but before the show, I think you we weren't talking about it. We were emailing about it. Uh, the Oscar nominations. You were upset that I Wonder so Woman. I so upset. Why why was that why was that left out? Is it because it's a comic book movie? Uh, yes. Well, and not just a comic book movie, but a comic book movie starring a a woman. It it just it it wasn't taken as seriously as I think it should have been because there have been comic book films in the past have been nominated, not usually for things like, you know, best actor, best film, best director, but a lot of times when it comes to best special effects or things like that, comic book movies get the nomination. I think there maybe have even been some supporting actor actresses nominated from superhero films. Wonder Woman got nothing, nothing, and that is so yeah. ridiculous to me. It was a box office smash. It stole the show. It was 
record-breaking in so many different ways. It was unbelievably barrier-breaking because it was the first feature-length film starring a female superhero. Gal Gadot well, it, was Well, it's amazing. interesting, though, because... It, it's what's interesting though is you're saying that that it was because it's a comic book movie and it's a female comic book movie, but isn't Hollywood kind of going all out to, to to like emphasize? I mean, after the Me Too stuff and Harvey Weinstein and all the that ugliness, to go overboard to to emphasize women this, this yeah, year? but but a comic book hero, especially Wonder Woman, who is like uh, who tends to be seen as a a sex figure and things like that because she's. Because she's a female comic book hero, and her her skirt is too short, and blah blah blah. I think I think the whole Harvey Weinstein you know, thing worked I, against Gal Gadot in this whole thing, which is stupid. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't understand. Yeah, Wonder Woman's absolutely a, 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 a I, I don't know what you want to call an it, icon sex, of icon. female power. Sure. She is, she and, is and a so are so are male superheroes. Well, I mean, absolutely. But oh, oh Wonder- yeah, okay. She she's. She's showing some skin or whatever. I, I'm pretty sure uh, Superman is wearing some skin-tight pajamas with his underwear on the outside. You want to talk about, you know, being scandalously clad. Spider-Man is wearing literally all spandex head to toe. Nothing's hidden in yeah. Spider-Man's costume. Okay? So I, 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 was, I was reading this. This was written by Brandon Morse at RedState.com. He writes, Hollywood is bending over backwards to make sure women get noticed this year. Perhaps it's only right, seeing as one of the largest... Uh, virtual signal platforms in the world finally had to come forward and admit it harbored sexual predators of every variety around almost every corner. But despite its current strategy of figuratively placing its lips squarely on the collective rump of female talent in Hollywood, hopefully this time with consent, one movie featuring a powerful woman is noticeably absent from the current crop of Oscar nominations despite its success and approval. Wonder Woman was shining a light in an age where superhero movies were a dime a dozen. Uh, was a shining light in an age where superhero movies were a dime a dozen. Directed by female director Patty Jenkins and starring the beautiful and talented uh, Gal Gadot is... Am I saying that right? Is that... No, it's Gadot. How do you Gal pronounce Gadot. Her name? Gal Gadot. Okay, I apologize. Gal Gadot uh, and its lead, uh, Wonder Woman, ended up surpassing 2002 Spider-Man as the number one grossing origin movie for a superhero in the world. If anything, it's a spectacular example of the ability of women in Hollywood to stand on their own and make something that can blow us all away. And yet Hollywood snubbed it for Oscar nomination. Why? For all intents and purposes, it should be counted among Oscar nods left and right despite the fact that it's a superhero movie if it's all the criteria necessary for hollywood love or so you would think wonder woman ran into too many political troubles to be considered safe for an oscar nomination hollywood being the left-wing haven that it is couldn't stomach a few of wonder woman's glaring politically incorrect flaws for one feminists didn't seem to think wonder woman was suitable as a rep for their narrative she was too sexy and too beautiful she was constantly being gawked at by her male companions in the movie, which only made feminists put Wonder Woman in the four male gaze column. What's more, Diana, Wonder Woman's real name, was reduced to mush at the sight of a baby. Even worse, she learns the value of men and even falls in love with one. The nerve. Uh, James Cameron may have summed up how Hollywood views Wonder Woman's lack of feminism by calling the movie a step backwards for women. Uh, all, and this is quoting Cameron now, all of the self-congratulatory back-patting Hollywood's been doing over Wonder Woman has been so misguided. She's an objectified icon, and it's just male Hollywood doing the same old thing. 
I'm not saying I didn't like the movie, but to me, it's a step backwards. Sarah Connor was not a beauty icon. She was strong. She was troubled. She was a terrible mother, and she earned the respect of the audience through pure grit. And to me, the benefit of characters like Sarah is so obvious. I mean, half the audience is female. He's talking about Sarah Connor's obviously from the Terminator movies. What do you think of that? I cannot stand that whole narrative. Okay, feminism isn't just about one idea of what a woman should want to be. Feminism is supposed to be about empowering women in everything they do. Wonder Woman is a prime example of a powerful woman. She is a magnificent role model for young girls, for adult women, for feminists alike. She has strength. She comes into her own. She goes against the society that she had been a part of because she feels that there is something important that she needs to experience and do. She goes out to do it. Yes, she falls in love with the, the, the lead male character. So what? That proves that she has an open heart and she that's, that's part of her character is this ability yeah. to love. I think, I think the problem is here is this, this narrow, exclusionary view of feminism that has become very, very popular. Absolutely. Among some on the left. So, so Wonder Woman can't be a great role model because she's beautiful. She was an Amazon. Do people right. not understand what the, the history of the Amazons I have are? Been, I have been talking about this with women in the conservative movement for a long time. As a matter of fact, one of our frequent guest hosts, Betty Grandy talks about it a lot now she's a conservative woman um she's socially conservative she's fiscally conservative uh she has got a right of center point of view and is often treated by women's groups by feminist groups uh as though she's somehow a traitor to the cause you know the the idea being that because she's a female uh she has to adhere to certain political beliefs which i think is is wrong and 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 in many ways i exactly the sort of demeaning putting women in a box type of stuff that the feminists claim to hate i don't think you should have to believe something because you're a certain gender you shouldn't have to think a certain way because you're a certain uh, uh have a certain racial background you're you you're an individual uh and you can be a feminist and believe what you want to believe whether it's conservative points of view or libertarian or liberal or progressive or green party or, or whatever you are I think what feminism should be is just protecting your right to have the same rights as everybody else does to do what you want to do and say what you want to say and think what you want to think. That, to me, is what feminism is. It's it's equality, not shoehorning people into a certain box. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to continue the discussion after the break. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back. Report 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM 701-293-9000 888-970-9329 email talk at WDY, WDY.com uh, Let's see. We got a caller. Dean, you're on. What's up? 
Greetings. Yeah, I do like uh, films where people go outside their like gender roles, whether sensitive and vulnerable males or uh, strong females. And I was surprised how good some of the '80s movies I was pulling out lately on had, uh, like Alien and uh, even like Swamp Thing. I was really surprised that the strong females in those huh. movies. And uh, I, I kind of uh, remember another- Swamp Thing. I, I kind of remember Swamp Thing. I, I don't. That was a comic book too. First, wasn't it? Natiel Swamp Thing. I think so. Yeah. Was yeah, that a comic yeah. book first, Dean? Yeah, it was. It uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was Wes Craven made it from like a horror movie. Really? Scene and... I remember the movie Swamp Thing. I I, I remember my sisters watching. I remember my sisters watching Swamp Thing when I was a very very little kid. Um, but yeah, the Alien franchise. Uh, that's Sigourney Weaver, Ripley. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great female lead. She was yeah, awesome in that movie. Yeah. For sure. Well, have a good one, everyone. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for the call, Dean. Appreciate it. 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. Yeah, I just, I, I hate, I hate that version. I And I want to say, it, it's not just, fe- the, the feminists do it, and it's obnoxious. But they're not the only ones. Uh, there's lots of people who do that, who, who expect you to think a certain way and to act a certain way and to believe certain things because you're a certain gender or because you're uh, a, a certain racial background or, or whatever your demographics are, um, there are people who think that way. And I, it's it's obnoxious, and it's hateful, uh, and I wish people weren't like that. Uh, let's see. we got another caller on the line. John, go ahead, John. What's up? Say, wasn't the movie a Swamp Thing, the, the uh, Kevin Kramer story? <laughs> what? Wasn't you, the movie you, Swamp Thing the Kevin you, Kramer story? No, I, 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 no, I don't think so. It wasn't. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah, good one, John. You're hilarious. <laughs> that was the lamest. That was pretty lame. I, I like a good, I like a good joke at the expense of any given politician, whatever the flavor. I think politicians are people we should mock, but I don't know. That was pretty lame. I give that a D minus. D minus. What do you think, Nitya? It was topical. If it wasn't, it was if it, if it if it wasn't so topical to what we were talking about, I'd given it an F. But <laughs> he was at least on topic, so he gets a D minus. I don't know. I'm still all wound up about Wonder Woman. Yeah. What well, is stupid? It's stupid. It was. It's a good movie, but because it doesn't, I, I guess, match the narrative for certain political people, then that's it's not okay. Well, and the the worst part for me is that, so now Wonder Woman has been extremely successful at the box office, and this is making Marvel finally move forward on a Black Widow standalone film. Uh, There's talk about Scarlett Johansson being paid something like $25 million to do... Good, that's an interesting character. Well, absolutely, but my, my (laughs) my, my concern now is that because... Wonder Woman didn't fit the specific box that feminists were looking for. Marvel's going to go out of their way to make Black Widow do exactly that. And then Black Widow's going to get all these Oscar nominations. And I'm going to be so mad because Wonder Woman paved the way for this to happen. And and you know know what the the flip side of the coin is? Is that like the the all-female Ghostbusters movie, right? Oh, and And that just bombed. That was, well, it was a bad movie. But we were all supposed to like it because, you know, the feminists were all excited about it and we replaced all the men in the movie with women and and it was just supposed to be this this feminist whatever. It was a, it was a bad movie. And I, I don't say that 
Like, I'm not trying to insult the... I mean, sometimes actors make bad movies and directors make bad... It happens. It just wasn't a good movie. It wasn't very entertaining. I don't know that there was really anything that was worth your time to to tune in. Uh, you know, it was a bad movie. But now, all of a sudden, because I don't like that movie, I'm anti-feminist, right? Like, that's the stupid rules that, that they draw. Like, Wonder Woman, great movie. Compelling characters, you know, very nice story, good action sequence, well-made movie, right? Just just a good movie, good portrayals, good movie all the way around, but it doesn't match the right political narrative, so the feminists say it's a bad movie, it's a back, it's a step backwards. But Ghostbusters is a great movie because it, it matches the right political narratives, even though it was boring, even though it wasn't well done. It's stupid. Maybe stop trying to match everything, make everything match your politics. How about that? All right, more coming up straight ahead. Hour two of the Rob Report, 701-293-9000, Email talk at WDAY.com. We'll be right back. Don't go away. The Rob Report. The Rob Report. On 970 WDAY. The Rundown. All right, Natil, what's in the headlines? All right, we're going to start off. With Alcatraz, inmates survived their infamous 1962 escape, a letter suggests. This, I actually was reading about this. And uh, first of all, I, I am, I, I don't know why, I've had this lifelong fascination with Alcatraz. You know, the prison on the island in the San Francisco Bay. I don't know what it is about it. I, I just can't. I love the stories from it. All the famous people who were kept there. I, it just, I don't know. And then, of course, the escapes. Now, now this was the one... These are the three guys on the raft that they made from, like, sewn-together raincoats, and then they inflated it with an accordion, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Think... They, it was it was okay. probably the most infamous escape. It was a, a super daring prison escape. They, they got out of the prison. They were out on the Pacific, and it was believed that they disappeared into the night never to be seen again. And it became just, and... like, this massive source for folklore, for Hollywood fuel. It just... it. There were yeah. Clint Eastwood was in a movie about Escape from Alcatraz. Uh, there have been books yeah, now, written about now, it. It's 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 crazy. So so now one somebody claiming to be one of the escape prisoners has sent a letter. A letter allegedly written by one of the escapees apparently uh, came to light, and CBS out in San Francisco reported on it. He says the the letter says this is the entire letter. My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962 with my brother Clarence and Frank Morris. I'm 83 years old and in bad shape. I have cancer. Yes, we all made it that night, but barely. Wow. So so this letter has made the FBI reopen the case when it comes to their escape. Now, I, I think what's, I was reading some other reports about this. What's interesting is that this guy claimed to have lived in North Dakota for eight years. What? Okay, I missed that yeah. part. Yeah, he claimed it. He claimed that that for eight of the years he was uh, obviously he's been on the lam. So I think they they escaped in the sixties. I think. Yeah, so he's been on the lam for fifty five years. Yeah. So he's and, and he for eight of those lived in North Dakota. This guy could have been your neighbor. Whoa! You don't know. I don't know how how crazy is that? I wonder how you live for that long. In the United States, particularly coming into the modern era, when like your social security number and stuff is is related to somebody who escaped from prison, you, like, you got to you got to get a whole new identity. I mean the the 
the stories, like, if this is true, if this is the guy, the stories that he could tell about how he survived, about what he had to go through to be able to do things like secure housing and feed himself. I just, wow, <laughs> blows my mind. Well, it's a fascinating story. What Now, what... Uh... He sent the letter. What what's happening now? Are they gonna? Is he gonna reveal himself or what's? Well, the the FBI has reopened its investigation into this this iconic cold case because escaping from a prison is turns right. out a crime. I, I, yes. Uh, so they've they've reopened that case. They've the U.S. Marshals um, are investigating. The FBI lab has examined the letter for fingerprints and DNA and examined the handwriting. And the FBI says the results of those invest of those particular investigations were inconclusive. What did this guy do? Like, why was he in Alcatraz? I mean, I, oh, shoot, I should Alcatraz. know. I should know, and I don't think I remember. Did I lose you, Rob? I believe I have lost Senor Rob Port. That being the case, we will take a quick commercial break. I'll get Rob back on, and we'll finish up the rundown when we come back. All right, sorry about that. That was my fault. That wasn't even technical difficulty. That was me uh, <laughs> kicking the kicking the power cord by accident under my desk that the uh, my equipment's plugged into. So that was super. Good job, Rob. Great moments in broadcasting. That's all right. Idiot. We'll hit the we'll, we'll hit the rundown okay. part two now. All right. Take two. Uh, All right. So, but we were talking about what did this guy do? Do we know? That's what I was wondering. How did this guy end up in in Alcatraz? I don't remember. I just I just looked it up on Wikipedia here. Uh, oh, they were bank robbers. Oh, okay. That's right. And that was a federal penitentiary. Okay, so they were bank robbers. I, I and and the reason I bring that up is, I mean, okay, so this guy's been on the lam for fifty some years. I kind of feel like maybe we can just say, okay, you know, <laughs> let's just. Let's just move on with our lives, right? Like if this guy's been living, uh, you know, abiding a uh, law-abiding life for uh, for all those years, um, you know, I'd rather give this guy some some, you know, let, let's let's just wipe away that that prison sentence and and I want to hear the story. I, I guess. I mean, maybe that sounds awful, but I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know at this point what's going to be served by putting an eighty-year some year old man in in jail for this. So. Anyway, I think it's a cool story. And the fact that he lived for eight years in North Dakota, I want to know where he lived. I just want to hear was the Was he going story. to Bison Games while he was here? I don't know. I hope, I hope yeah. he ghostwrites the yeah, whole story. Yeah, I want story. to know where he lived in North Dakota. <laughs> yeah. I was governor of North Dakota for eight years. No, <laughs> probably not. Uh, all right, what's next? Uh, the Pope is warning against fake news and liking, likening it to the crafty serpent in Genesis. I love this Pope. All right. Yeah. So what? Okay, so so uh, he doesn't think people should say fake. I don't think people should say fake stuff either. Well, it's he's, um, Pope Francis is. You know, I mean, condemning... th- there's a commandment against it. You shouldn't lie. Yeah. Right. Thou shalt not lie. I think there's that. And, and Pope Francis is condemning fake news, is calling fake news a sign of intolerant and hypersensitive attitudes that leads only to the spread of arrogance and hatred. So I don't think he's necessarily condemning the use of the fake word, but condemning the existence of opinion pieces being portrayed as as news. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I have a problem with, with that getting lumped in with fake news. I mean, to me, fake news is, is something that's factually inaccurate. Like, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, uh, Jay Thomas ate a tuna fish sandwich today, and he didn't really eat a tuna fish sandwich today. That's fake news, right? Like, that's that's factually inaccurate. I don't like that. I, I think the problem is, is, is people are starting to use it uh, to argue against being exposed to viewpoints that they don't like. That's that's my problem where, where people are starting to use the fake news moniker because I get it directed at me a lot. People say, oh, Port's fake news. Yeah, it's fake news because I'm making an argument that they disagree with. Now, there's nothing wrong with disagreeing with, with the argument that I make, right? Like if, I, if I'm building an argument for something, I'm going to cite this, cite that. I'm going to, you know, probably walk you through some reasoning and arrive at a conclusion. And you may disagree with that conclusion. But the fact that you disagree with that conclusion does not make me fake news or anybody else who's offering you a viewpoint. That's valuable. I'm going out. I'm connecting the dots on data. I'm connecting the dots on facts and presenting you with an argument. Now, you may think my argument's wrong. You may think it's it's born of some stupid thinking, and that's fine. But it's not fake news. Now, if I make an error of fact, if I say, well, in 1964, the poverty rate was X and really it was Y, well, then now I've made an error of fact. And that becomes fake news. So I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's the problem I have is I, I think people are using fake news, including President Donald Trump, are using fake news to dismiss points of view they just don't like. Absolutely. And I, I agree with you there. And that's that's especially frustrating to me because there is a difference between news and between opinion. If someone is presenting you news, they're presenting you facts. And if those facts are inaccurate, then that is that is not news that's inaccurate news if someone well, is providing you with an opinion they're providing you with something that comes in addition to those facts they're providing you a lens with which to view the facts and you can agree with the view through that lens or you right. can disagree with the with the view from that lens but that doesn't make it news and that doesn't make it fake news it makes it an opinion any i i i can tell you as somebody who writes opinion pieces for a living I don't get to just make up facts and stick them in there. Like, I, I don't get to, I, people say that, that you know, they, they accuse me of that. They accuse McFeely of that. They accuse the other opinion people of that, of, oh, they just make things up. No, we don't. If I make an error of fact in one of my columns, I have to correct it. The paper issues a correction. It's a big deal. Like, we work very hard to avoid that sort of thing. Um, you know, but but I, I think that's the problem a lot of people in the public are having is distinguishing between an error, an error of fact and something that is just a viewpoint that they disagree, like like a conclusion drawn from facts that they think is erroneous or whatever. Uh, I, that's the problem people are having. And, and people are just, this era, I think people are particularly sensitive to being exposed to things they disagree with. And, and I think a lot of it is just we're exposed to more things that we disagree with than ever before, thanks to the Internet. I mean, you scroll through Facebook, and all of a sudden your liberal cousin is uh, spouting off about the president or something and you disagree and i that happens you know a dozen times a day it gets tiresome so i think i don't know i think we're in a very weird transition era in our our media although i was reading an interesting anecdote if we might go down a rabbit hole for a minute here natila as we are wont to do um i was reading this this fantastically interesting or i was actually listening to this on a podcast and they were talking about um, in the 19th, you know, probably middle to late 19th century, uh, they came out with a new type of printing press called the rotary press. 
and it dramatically increased the speed at which newspapers could be printed and pushed down the cost. So all of a sudden, you could print a whole bunch more newspapers for a lot less money. And it gave rise to what was called the penny press. And all of a sudden, that lower cost broke down the barrier of entry into the print market, and a lot of unscrupulous people were all of a sudden in the print market. And they were out there, uh, and it, it, was, it was really so, sort of the beginning. It was, it was the Jack the Ripper age. Um, so it was, it was really sort of the beginning of that very sensational sort of crime reporting about gangs and, and immigrant crime and, and all of this stuff. And, and these, they called them the penny press uh, because they cost a penny versus the traditional press, which I think costs like six pennies or something like that. Six pence, maybe. Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't understand. British call their money a lot of weird things sometimes. Anyway, um, I, I think that's very interesting because it's almost like that was the Internet. Like the rotary press was the Internet of its day because that's what the internet did is it lowered the cost of reaching a mass audience to almost nothing right i mean you could post something on facebook and potentially if it gets shared a whole bunch reach an audience of millions and millions of people um you know so so really i i think we're in that same sort of transition period that even the print industry went to where all of a sudden the cost of entry fell through the floor and society is now trying to adapt to this new source of information. And surprise, surprise, at the beginning, there are a lot of unscrupulous people who are using, you know, trying to manipulate the public for political gain or, or fiduciary gain or what have you. But I, I think we'll get through it. We've been through this before. There's nothing new under the sun. I think you're right. Let's All up, right, what's next? Let's set up the next one. A big positive surprise coming from Trump tax plan, CEOs say. Ah, yeah. I think I think they're right. And What's this one, on? this one is actually interesting because I, I've heard a lot in news recently about how the people that are getting the most out of this tax plan aren't necessarily individual people, but are banks, U.S. banks. And apparently it's not just U.S. banks that are interested in this tax plan, but other nations' banks are becoming very interested in America. Again, foreign businesses are actually looking to put more money into the United States again after Trump's tax cut plan. Yeah, yeah um, there that's was great. yeah there was a, a recently an annual gathering of top business and political leaders in um, is it Davos? Davos. I Davos. Okay, I can never pronounce or that. Maybe one that's correctly. the guy from Game of Thrones. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but they they met and they're selling the Trump tax plan to skeptics and fighting back on the public perception that the tax bill was just for the rich. Uh, there are banks in France and banks in Switzerland that are very excited about this. And, you know, those aren't, you know, just small third world countries. Those are major first world countries here that are looking yeah. to get back into the American economy. And I don't think that's something that we were necessarily expecting out of this tax plan. I, I think it was, though. I, I think a lot of people were talking about, although it was more in the context of American businesses moving their revenue and their operations back into the United States, and, re but, repatriating. And this is a different thing. This is foreign right. businesses looking to put now, some now seeing America Now seeing America as, as a, maybe a more profitable place to do business. Yes. And so I, I, think, I, think, that, I think it's a great thing. I just don't yeah. think that it was necessarily expected, which is great. In addition, yeah. like so, new, big, new big happy surprises are good things. And I think, I think that this is – I think that this is – 
a big problem, I think, for the Democratic narrative on the tax reform bill because they want to do a very static analysis and they want to say, well, this isn't going to help people where they're at right now. And A, it will a little bit. But B, I, I think the much bigger, more profound impact that this is going to have is the creation of opportunity. Because until, I, I think you and I know we are not static in, in our lives, right? You are not in the same position you were 10 years ago, right? You've got more skills. You've got more earning power. You're moving up the ladder, right? That's what you're supposed to do if you're doing it right. Now, maybe not everybody does that, and we can have a, a conversation about why that happens. A lot of times it has to do with poor decisions being made by the person trying to climb the ladder. Sometimes it's bad luck, too. Um, but but I, I, think, I think that's what you've got to view life at, not as some stagnant, you're stuck in one place, and so we've just got to improve you in that one place you are. I think it's wrong. What we've got to do is provide ladders so that people can move up. And I'm going to tell you, more companies doing business in the United States is going to provide more ladders for Americans. Um, American businesses moving more of their operations, more of their money back into the United States is going to provide more ladders for Americans. The fact that it's easier to engage in commerce, to engage in business in the United States of America is going to provide more ladders for Americans. That's going to be the profound impact. And I, I think that's going to be the problem Democrats have with this bill that they've tried to demagogue, which I, I think is proving to be a lot better policy maybe even than they expected. So, uh, all right, what's next? All right, we're going to wrap up with a headline that makes me just go, well, duh. Obesity is contagious, new research finds. Contagious and what? I mean, you say contagious, I think people are thinking like catching a cold from somebody. But I, that can't be what they mean. No. You can't catch fat from somebody. It's, it's a social contagion. Yeah. Because people who are, what this research has found is that people who are obese tend to be around other people who are obese. It was actually a really interesting study done on U.S. Army members and their families. And what they found was that the Army members and their families were more likely to become overweight or obese if they lived in countries that had high rates of obesity. And those that yeah. lived in countries with lower rates of obesity were less likely to become overweight or obese themselves. Well, I think it's an environmental thing. Like, if you grow up in an environment, because I mean, being fit takes discipline, right? It, it does. And I, I say that as somebody who obviously doesn't have a lot of discipline when it comes to the things I eat and the exercise that I get. I, I should be doing better on both fronts, and I'm not. And that's those are decisions that I make. And I, I think if you're around other people who also don't make good decisions in that regard, it, it becomes easier for you. You know what I mean? Like, like if you're around a bunch of people who are getting up early and they're getting exercising and they're eating, eating good meals and everything, I think it's a lot easier to get into those habits. Well, yeah, because people, if, people mirror the behaviors of their social circles. If you choose sure. a social circle that is very physically active, I mean, if you chose, choose a social circle that is doing things like biking on the weekends or going out and playing disc golf or, you, you know, you join us a, a group of friends who plays intramural basketball at the Y every other week or something like that, you're going to mirror those social behaviors in your own life and you're going to be more active. You're going to be more fit. You're going to drink more water, whatever it happens to be. If you choose a social group that is a lot more inactive or that tends to meet up at places like McDonald's or other fast food places, places that don't have healthy eating choices, you're going to mirror those particular choices and put those choices into your life and you're not going to end up, you're going to end up with yeah. results that lead you to a path of being overweight or obese. Well, I, I think, I think the, like the, um, the social workers and the counselors, those sorts of people talk about this where it's sort of a, a cycle of poverty, 
right? Where, uh, you know, whether it, I mean, it's and it's it's a lot of those decisions. It's it's drug abuse. It's work ethic. It's um, you know, desire to pursue education and training. It's all of those things. And I, if you're around people who don't prioritize education, who don't prioritize getting up in the morning and going to work and achieving, uh, who do prioritize, you know smoking meth or drinking or, or doing a lot of those things, it's not surprising that other generations are going to fall into that cycle. It's just easy to. If you're around that, it's easy to just fall in with the pack. Humans are kind of pack animals in that way. So um, and that's why it's so hard to break out of that cycle, to be the person who says, no, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna fight against the grain of all the people around me and do something different. We, um, we that's per- where it becomes different. And- we perform what we know. Right. I mean, the cycle of abuse is a thing that's been talked about for well, that's forever. Right. If you're a little boy and you see your dad hit your mom, you're probably going to grow up, even though intellectually, you know, the society frowns on that sort of thing. You're going to think, well, dad did it. Even if you think it's wrong, even if part of you says, I know it's wrong to hit to hit my wife. In an extremis, you, when, when you're in some, when you're in some when, volatile exactly. situation. You're going to resort to what you you know, what you've seen, what what that that sort of first lesson was. So yeah, whether it's obesity, whether it's violence, whether it's drug abuse, whether it's work ethic, whatever it is, environment has a big part of of how people grow up. So it matters. Think about what you're doing in front of your kids. All right, let's wrap it up. You want to mention what's coming up after the news first? Oh yeah, uh, Congressman Kevin Kramer is going to join us next. He's uh, here for his open phones uh, segment. You can certainly call us, 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. Get your comments, questions in. He'll answer them for you. Natia, let's take it out. You're listening to AM 970 WDAY 93.1 FM. This is the Rob Report. And that's The Rundown. Welcome back, Rob Port 970 WDAY AM 93.1 FM, 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at WDAY.com. Be joined by Congressman Kevin Kramer in a moment. You can get your comments and questions ready for that. Uh, sometimes uh, when he we, we cut a little close with his votes. So uh, let's see, emailer says, uh, Mark says, so why is it called on the left? We were talking about that, the escape from Alcatraz. Uh, and apparently, I, uh, one of the esca- the famous escapees, the three guys who who got away, they never found them. Uh, they think they got away. A lot of people think they may have died in the bay. Anyway, somebody claiming to be one of them sent a letter. Said he's, he lived eight years in North Dakota, but I think I said he's been on the lam for what, like fifty years or something now. Mark says, so why is it called on the lam? Uh, Mark spells it L A M B. It's actually spelled L A M. And I, I think the origin of the term's not certain, but it, it's it's sort of a slang term. It's very old. Uh, they're thinking it comes from the the, the British uh, for lambast, which is to beat. So if you tell somebody to beat it, it's to get out of here. Uh, so if you tell tell somebody to go on the lambast to, to beat, you basically tell them to beat it, and then we shorten it to on the lamb. It's it's slang. Uh, I know it's a little weird. I'm an ant amateur etymologist. Believe me, I. I, I'm a dork. I like to look up these idioms and sayings and find out where it's from. But anyway, that's where it's from, and it's spelled L-A-M. We won't waste any more time because now we've got Congressman Kevin Kramer on the line. Congressman, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Rob. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Have you heard this story that one of the uh, the Alcatraz escapees may have spent eight years in North Dakota? 
I, I have. I didn't not until just now listening to your, uh, your little monologue. It's uh, fascinating to say the least. It is. Yeah. I wonder if he got elected to the legislature or anything while he was here. I don't know. Now you don't know. <laughs> Anything's possible. Anything's uh, possible. All right. Um, yeah, I want to know more about that story. Okay, so here's the thing I wanted to ask you about. Sure. This this memo. Yeah. What is going on with this memo? Now, I know you've tweeted about it. You've said it should be released. I wanted to read you something. This is from David French. He's a writer for National Review. He says, I quote, It's time to put up or shut up. Release the memo. Release the supporting evidence release the FISA applications, release FISA court opinions and orders. The public has no reason to trust politicians who talk about documents the public can't see. Uh, he continues, classification rules exist to protect national security, not the careers or reputations of politicians and bureaucrats. The level of disgust, uh, the level of distrust and partisan anger in this country is becoming its own national security problem. Transparency is now necessary if you release only the memo without the supporting evidence and without greater context, that's not transparency. If it's top-line conclusions without supporting evidence, no one will trust its contents, nor should they. What do you make of that? Is that the sort of thing you're supporting? Well, you have to, I, I believe in doing things incrementally and in the right, in, not only in the right increments, um, but in the right order. Because, like it or not, if you were to just, you know, uh, appeal to sort of the urgency of everybody's desire to know, and, and it's easy to do that, but but make a, a uh, legal mistake in the process, you can blow up everything that you're trying to accomplish through transparency. In other words, we're so litigious today, and, and so many rules and regulations and laws have been passed over the years, uh, again, right or wrong, that you know only takes one judge and, and one lawyer to decide, not that they shouldn't have done that, and therefore... Um, you know, he'd lock it up forever, so to speak. Now, whether that would happen or not, I don't know. But it, but but doing it in a process, through a process and diligence that allows both the transparency and then the legal strength of that transparency to occur is, is really important. I know people are anxious to see it. I my conclusion, and not being a lawyer, when I read the memo, just starting with the memo itself before the other supporting information. Um, my observation is it doesn't appear that there's anything that would be a threat to national security. Therefore, I believe it ought to be made public. I, I, and I actually believe that's what's going to happen. But people who are experts are combing through it to make sure that they don't create a legal challenge in, in releasing the memo. But, but to the writer's point, so if the memo concludes something but doesn't provide the evidence that concludes it, does that allow, you know, is that transparent enough? I would say, having read the memo, that it's it's not just a it's not a memo that just feeds into the sort of the uh, the bias of a part of our society. I mean, it's very specific. Um, I don't think the facts are in much dispute, quite frankly, and, and I've never heard anybody really dispute the facts of the memo. Uh, remembering we're talking about again, I've got to be very careful here, but it's no secret that in the memo itself is referring to. Um, some of the evidence that was used to go to FISA to get a, a warrant, and I don't. Again, I don't think that the, the facts that support the memo are going to be broadly disputed. In fact, it was Adam Schiff, the ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, who concluded that the memo should should not be released because the public wouldn't understand it. And of course, therein lies the philosophical problem with the left. 
701-293-9000, email talk at wday.com. Now, I realize, I mean, you've seen the memo, and you can acknowledge that you've seen the memo. You can't divulge to us what's in the memo because it hasn't been, I, I guess, declassified yet. That's the term yeah, for it. Yeah, it's not quite de- – it's good. I'm glad you brought that up because de- declassification is actually a different process, and um, whereas this was just sort of re- – Releasing it, it sounds like the same thing, but releasing the memo to the public, that requires just a simple majority vote of the Intelligence Committee and then the um, either the agreement of the of the President of the United States or uh, then a simple vote of the, a uh, majority vote of the House of Representatives. Um, but, so it's not quite declassifying, but it is re- releasing the memo. I know it sounds goofy, but it's... Have you, have you seen the supporting documents? I mean, because that, that's sort of the thing, and, and I know you're saying that the memo mm-hmm. maybe can kind of stand on its own. Are there supporting documents? Have you seen those? Well, I've not seen those because those have not been declassified, even to the point where members of Congress who are not on the Intelligence Committee um, can see them. That's likely next, but you're, you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of pages, uh, probably, of, of documentation. But we'll start with this, and, and I believe, of course, the, the, at the core of a lot of this is the dossier, the salacious dossier, and everybody's seen that that wants to see it because it's, it was, you know, released. So you've got the dossier, you've got this memo, and then you also have um, these text messages between FBI agents and lovers and all kinds of people, and then, of course, the fact that there just so happens to be several of them missing during a particular time frame during which, you know, the, probably the most condem- condemning, um, you know, discourse is, is uh, highlighted. So there, there's a lot of things out there that piece it all together. All right, let's 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 switch gears here. Talking about the um, the budget situation, now, of course, we ended the shutdown earlier yeah, this so week. So to speak, yeah. Um, well, so to speak, I, yeah. I guess, and, and what Democrats got is we got a shorter time window right. until the next uh, national hullabaloo of, of brinksmanship over, over the budget. So basically it's three weeks now instead of, well, even less than three weeks now. Right. Um, what's the House doing? Now, Now, in my understanding, the House has passed all the budgets on regular order. That's how you guys want to proceed? Well, that's how we'd like to proceed. We passed all the appropriations bills last summer and fall, um, in the last one in September. So, yeah, we did all that in regular order, and that's how we ought to proceed. The Senate has taken up none of them. So... That's what we'd like to proceed. In all likelihood, that's not what the Senate's going to do, and and uh, we always have to sort of do the blocking and tackling and carry the ball to the one-yard line for the Senate to screw it up. But um, now we're going to have to do some sort of an omnibus spending bill that reflects, hopefully, many of the priorities in the House, 12 separate appropriations bills. But we have this extra this extra thing thrown in there regarding DACA, these, you know, at childhood arrivals. Um, and so that's a complicating factor in that it's not a it's not a appropriation. In fact there's no appropriation attached to it whatsoever. But we'll we're you know, we're gonna deal with that anyway because on March fifth DACA goes away. And a lot of people like to blame the president for that and it is his executive order, but his executive order reflects the the uh, order of a federal judge that DACA isn't is in fact not constitutional, and um, you know, and it's a again, it's an executive order; it's not a law. So we need well, to deal and, with and that let's, anyway. let's, re- let's remember what President Trump is saying with his executive order. He's saying Congress legislate. Yep, that's right? what he's saying. That's yeah. right. So we, so we, we're going to do that before March fifth anyway. So now we're going to, I guess, try to get it done be- by Mar- February eighth, so it can c- 
could coincide with this reopening of the government because um, Chuck Schumer has said he's going to hold up funding the government until we deal with with DACA. The, the big fight, though, is going to be because there are bills. I mean, we have bills both in the House and the Senate. Everybody has seen the House or the Senate bill because Lindsey Graham and others have negotiated what is amounts to amnesty and uh, and a little bit of money, I think, for for uh, border security. But um, we we in the House have a much more comprehensive bill that's more closely reflects the four pillars that were negotiated in that bipartisan meeting that everybody watched on TV of. Uh, you know, the elimination of uh, the visa lottery program, uh, the, that's the diversity program, ending up chain migration, and then border security, as as well as then some sort of a, a um, you know, provision, a legal provision for in these DACA individuals to get some legislative or some legal status as, you know, provided as minors. So all of that is one big package. And if we give up DACA, as a standalone bill, the Dreamer Act, for example, without dealing with the more comprehensive immigration issues, uh, both on the legal and the illegal side, then then we'll never get to comprehensive immigration reform. We'll probably never get a wall built if we don't uh, you know, if we don't attach it as one big bill. Speaking of getting a wall built, and by the way, if you have any comments or questions, a couple of minutes left with the congressman seven zero one two nine three nine thousand eight 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 nine seven zero nine three two nine. Email talk at wdy dot com. Uh, speaking of the border wall. Uh, you're bringing a guest to the State of the Union address next yeah. week. It's Tommy. He's been a guest of this show, Tommy Fisher, Fisher Standing Gravel, one of the finalists to build that border wall. Why are you bringing him? I mean, what? Why? Why choose him? Is the president? I mean, I, I imagine the border wall is going to be something the president's going to talk about during his speech. Is he going to reference the fact that Tommy's in the audience? <laughs> yeah, I don't know because I, I didn't let the White House know that I was bringing him. I didn't um, run it by them. Uh, you know, I, I didn't seek their permission, nor would I need it necessarily. But. Um, Tommy's my constituent. He's, you know, he's a North Dakotan. He, his product, by the way, is is absolutely phenomenal. If anybody hasn't, I don't know how much is out there in the public arena to see, but I, I've seen both their uh, proposal prior to being chosen as one of the finalists for, a, you know, for a prototype, and I've seen his post prototype presentation. It's just phenomenal um, what they're offering. You know, ahead of schedule, below budget. Uh, guaranteed with a, a bond. I mean, it's just a, a remarkable proposal. I wouldn't be surprised at all if they were chosen to do a, a good part, if not all, of the wall that gets built. And I just, for me, it's just a shining example of one more time when the North Dakotan steps up and and uh, creates a solution to a problem that uh, you know, with innovation and technology and hard work and um, you know, it's just it's just a remarkable story. So I, to me, it just seemed like a good chance to showcase North Dakota's finest at a time when it's, you know, front and center, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if the president mentions, uh, uh, you know, border security in his State of the Union address. Now we're, I'm just going to give him one extra prop. Last question. I, I heard something interesting. I was I was listening to the news, I think, yesterday morning, and they made reference to the fact that we've actually seen fewer um, arrests and, and detainments of illegal immigrants under the Trump administration than we saw under the Obama administration. Obviously, they're they're talking about like a rate because Trump's only been in the office for a year. Obama was in office right. for eight years. But basically, right. those arrests have slowed. But they said the explanation for that is not necessarily that, that, that President Obama was tougher on immigration, is that fewer people are coming into the country, uh, coming crossing the border illegally under Trump. 
isn't that in and of itself sort sort of a demonstration of the eff- efficacy of, of enforcing immigration laws? Is is just it's it's a deterrent to just don't even bother coming here in the first place? Well, I was going to use the word deterrent. You know, we often refer. When, when I say don't bother coming here in the first place, I want to say don't bother coming here illegally. I want legal immigration. Of I course, want lots of, of legal course. immigration. No, no absolutely. No, I think there's no question. I mean, he's demonstrated that deterrence works. In fact, I would submit to you that deterrence is a far more efficient and effective manner of. of whether security or national security, that's why we call our nuclear arsenal the nuclear deterrent. Uh, hopefully you never have to use it. Um, and, and, and in many respects, attitude is that. As I look at the Dow Jones today, up in 50, 51 points right now again, uh, a record you know, every day it seems like, that's, that's a reflection of attitude as, a, as it is um, fundamentals. And so the same is true of enforcement. If why do you think most gun crimes, or many gun crimes anyway, take place in gun-free zones? <laughs> There's no deterrent. And so, yes, I think Donald Trump's attitude is one that some people will complain about and say we've lost respect in the world. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, no, we've gained respect. They may not, they may not want to hold hands and sing kumbaya with us, but, but we've gained respect because he enforces the letter of the law as well as the spirit. Congressman, that's all the time we got. Appreciate it. Uh, you'll be here next Wednesday. So, And, and also going to work on getting Tommy on the show uh, to talk about his uh, going to the State of the Union. That's exciting. Oh, that'd be so. great. Yeah, we look forward to it. I'm sure he's going to draw a little bit of attention. <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. so. Congressman, thanks for your time. Thanks, Rob. Always a pleasure. Bye-bye. This is the Rob Report, 970 WDY AM 93.1 FM. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob. Report. Not a lot of time here because we get kind of long with the congressman. 701-293-9000, Email talk at wday.com if you want to get in the last couple of minutes. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, talking with uh, talking with the congressman, and um, you know, obviously, I, I don't know what to tell. I, I, I just we were talking about the illegal immigration thing yesterday. I like the idea of, and uh, the problem, I, I really think the illegal, illegal immigration issue is two separate issues. One, there's the issue of all the people who are already in the country, uh, many of them whom have deep ties, they've had children. I mean, that's a very complicated policy question. That's one part of it. The other part of it is stopping people who are coming here illegally. And, and to me, the more pressing part of those two problems is, Let's address all the people who are still coming into our country illegally. I, I mean, I, I am for, fa- I am in favor of very liberal um, immigration policies. I think legal immigration is generally a positive thing. I, I've got pretty much zero tolerance for illegal immigration, and I, I want to stop that. And I, I, that's how I divide up the issue. And to that end, I mean, if a border wall gets it done, let's do it. And and it sure seems like, you know, and Trump's not winning himself many friends in in some political circles, but. You know, getting tough on illegal immigrants in the United States seems to be deterring new illegal immigration. Is that not a good thing? I can tell by your facial expression that you may be thinking it's not. <laughs> well, I, I I think the deterrent is, is is a good thing. I but the the people that are already here, I think, need to be treated differently than people that aren't already here. We we've got to have a two pronged approach here. Yeah, the problem though is that if if you treat them, if you treat them differently, then you're encouraging the people who are yet to come. 
I think that's the worry. We're out of time. We don't have time to talk about this complicated issue. We don't. You and I will have to tackle this another time. Jay Thomas Show, straight ahead. You can always catch me here 12 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday, or, of course, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at SayAnythingBlog.com. We'll be back tomorrow. Tune in. We'll talk again.